Liz, can you co-host me, please? No. Can you transfer hosting to me? So um, I sent you a few things within the last few minutes. I seem to like to send things out like right at the last minute so that you can't really look at them. And I have that advantage over you because I've looked at them. Just kidding. I'm a bit of a procrastinator, so I do things at the last minute. But anyway, uh, since... Um, what you would call them, uh, sheets, uh, documents, there you go, In, uh, that present the stages of contemplation uh, from Kimpo Sultram Gyamso, one of my teachers, and some of you here, an amazing human being who taught uh, many times and extensively the stages of uh, of the tenant systems, as many of you, most of you know from his book, The uh, Progressive Stages of Contemplation of Emptiness. So um, I thought I would share these with you so that you may use them for your contemplation if you're interested. They're meant to be that way. So let's see, there's two of them. And I recommend the one that's two pages. So I will uh, screen share that. Maybe we'll just bow for those of us who joined us recently. We already chanted, unusual. So tonight we're uh, we're starting the Madhyamaka section of the book of the profound treasury of the, not the profound, the precious treasury of philosophical systems by Long Chen Rabjampa. And uh, so we've gone through a number of tenant systems in quite some detail, much more detail and a very different flavor from what you see in Kempo Tsuchum's book. And um, so it's helpful to sort of have a little snapshot that gives a sense of what is the essence and uh, of each stage <clears throat> so that you can uh, get a little bit more 
uh, view of how do they build on each other. And um, that building is part of a progression of uh, sort of dismantling our uh, the structure of samsara. So those two things that sort of get an understanding of the overall framework that we're gradually uh, dissolving the way that we uh, imprison ourselves in our minds and uh, it, it generally goes in certain stages and these are encapsulated in the tenant systems and they're uh, presented in this order because they do represent that uh, sort of general progression in one's mind as one enters into the Dharma and goes from being either a uh, theistic materialist, so to speak, where you believe that God really exists as a separate entity, or a stark materialist, non-theistic materialist, and you believe that what you see is what you get, and there's nothing more. So uh, we have um, on the two-page version of Travakiana, which includes the, the Vaibhashika and the Sautrantika traditions. And uh, one of these is from a book. There's two different versions of these. And one is from a book that's like a, a biography of Kimball Sultram. And the other is from, I think, handouts that I got from him at various programs. And I typed up the track down the source that we have. It's always good to have a published source if possible. But anyway, Shravaka stage that includes Vibhashika and Sautrantika. When objects are destroyed or mentally dissected, nothing remains for the mind to know. So nothing of those former objects remains. The only thing that remains, so, so those things that are destroyed and dissected and don't remain when objects are destroyed and dissected are completely false. Those things being compounded phenomena of any type. They're completely false. They're just uh, momentary, spurious, once in a lifetime, uh, compilations of, of uh, indis indivisible particles the genuinely existent are other than that the genuinely existent are um, cannot be destroyed and mentally dissected indivisible particles of matter and indivisible moments of time so their hypothesis is that there's these ultimate building blocks of matter and mind. And those are indestructible, cannot be destroyed, bless you. And um, when a chair, table, or a moment, a time period are divided up, 
one can only go so far. And the Chittamatra stage is uh, the, this hypothesis of something indestructible, indivisible, is itself illogical. So the non-dual mind only system is says that that which has parts does not exist. And uh, partless particles, in order to exist, must have parts. You can't propose something partless because it's completely illogical. Therefore, subtle particles are non-existent. Likewise, appearances apart from mind cannot be observed. There's, we, we, there's no way we can know anything about appearances that are um, separate from our mind, either direct or indirectly perceived by our mind. Therefore, experiences are like dreams. It's like, how do these things come about? How do we see material objects? How do we perceive things? How does the mind put together Sorry, how does the mind put together a, a, a temporal experience that spans time? Consciousness free from perceiver and perceived is all that exists in genuine actuality. Because we're left with just a sense of uh, perception, perceive, perceiver, or uh, free from perceiver, but non-dual. We're left, we're left with a sense of non-dual experience. And so Tantrika tonight's tenant system is that appearances exist completely falsely. They're like illusions. So any notions of things that uh, exist the way they appear is completely erroneous. So <clears throat> appearances are like illusions. We can't even say they are illusions because that would mean that they have some sort of existence or, or truth status as an illusion. But they're just sort of like illusions. In genuine reality, nothing exists. It's like space. And there's a subtle implication that there is something that, that doesn't exist, but that is like space. Where there is observation, that is completely false truth. Where there's a sense of perceiver and perceived, that's false truth. That's a false situation. That which is free from observer and observed is actual, genuine truth. So there is an actual, genuine truth that's free from observed and observer. Prasangika Madhyamaka, freedom from conceptuality. That which is imagined by the mind is completely false truth. Anything that the mind comes up with, appearances or the idea of genuine reality or the idea of non-dual experience or the idea that there's some state of mind free from, from false truth. The idea that there's an actual genuine truth is imagined by the mind and all of that is false truth. And uh, 
Madhyam, Prasangika Madhyamakas are famous for having this phrase that uh, relative truth, which is completely false, is expressed following worldly customs. We don't try to uh, come up with some fancy way of describing relative truth as dreamlike or this or that. We just go along with the worldly conventions of relative truth. Because there's no correct way to view something that doesn't exist. So there's no proper way to describe it or explain it. Because that, as soon as you try to do that, that assumes that we have accepted that something as something that can be talked about. And so the only way to not buy into relative truths is to just go along with whatever worldly customs there are in terms of relative truth. Actual, genuine truth is completely free from conceptual elaborations beyond thought and expression. So any type of actual reality that you come up with that you can can describe or think about or imagine is not actually genuine truth. All we can do is come up with this uh, um, clunky way of saying that um, real truth is completely beyond any idea of real truth, real reality actual reality. And then the Zhentong Madhyamaka view, emptiness of other, which Kenpo goes through, and Longchenpa does not go through explicitly. We'll see if he sort of uh, hints at it, though, in his presentation of Prasangika. Imaginary and the other dependent natures. So uh, if you remember your three natures, there's the imaginary nature, the dependent nature, here called the other dependent, which is a little bit of a a different translation of the dependent nature. These are the completely false truth. So they're not the, the there's, um, in this Vatantrika, there's this idea that there's a genuine relative truth. Appearances exist falsely. Uh, it's not stated here, but we see it in uh, Longchenpa's description, that there's, there's, uh, sort of correct relative truth. And we saw that in the Chittamatra system as well, that there was correct dependent truth, dependent nature. But here they're saying that the imaginary and the other dependent are completely false. And the difference between that and Chittamatra is that in the Chittamatra, they split the dependent nature into two parts, one part that's false and one part that's true. And so the Chittamaja have this this uh, odd sort of hanging on to there must be some sort of basis, which is the Aliyah Vijnana. And the Madhyamaka does away with that completely and says they're completely false truth. Actual, genuine truth is the perfectly existent nature. It differs from Prasangika in that there was a positive statement about ultimate reality. Sangika is saying it's just beyond. If there any genuine truth must be beyond completely. And here they're saying 
the actual genuine truth is the completely perfect, perfected nature of reality. So there's an actual identification of a, an ultimate reality, and they describe it as self-aware primordial awareness. One of the things that uh, uh, comes out in the in the progression of the stages of the tenant systems of understanding of the nature of reality that's not often explained is that there's a shift from initially describing all phenomena, talking about all phenomena, what is the nature of all phenomena, matter, mind, all the different five bases and so forth. But um, um, when you get to Madhyamaka, either of these three types of Madhyamaka, any of these three types, they no longer talk about phenomena. Phenomena are dismissed, and the discussion is all about the nature of the mind. And we see this carry over into the Mahamudra tradition of the Tibetan Buddhist schools and the Dzogchen traditions of the Nyingma, where the conversation is all about mind. And the reason is, is that Everything um, that's not mind cannot be proved to exist. And so when we talk about the nature of reality, instead of talking about the ultimate, sorry, the ultimate nature of reality, instead of talking about there being an ultimate reality of phenomena and what that might be, all we do is we focus on what's the ultimate nature of your mind. And that is equivalent to the ultimate nature of reality. So when they talk, when they say phrases uh, later on, like um, the supreme, um, endowed with all the supreme aspects as a description for the ultimate reality in the Shantong view, they're talking about the nature of the mind, the supreme mind, or this, the, the mind of a supreme one, i.e. a Buddha, which is inherently endowed with all the qualities of a Buddha. And all they're talking about is the mind, the being of a Buddha, because there's nothing else. Anyway, and then we have this famous uh, uh, excerpt from the, the root text on uh, the middle way by Nagarjuna the dedication that he does at the, uh, I think at the beginning of the text. He says, I prostrate to the perfect Buddha, the best of teachers are taught that whatever is dependently arisen is. And then he lists these famous eight similes uh, for um, emptiness. Everything dependently arisen is empty, i.e. unceasing and unborn. Repairs, it's really like unborn and unceasing, not annihilated, not permanent, not coming, not going, without destruction, without identity. And therefore, free from conceptual construction. And then there's a little uh, further cheat sheet, you might call it, on what are the four uh, logical arguments or sometimes called the skills of Madhyamaka, sometimes there's five of them. 
And these are focused on understanding the emptiness of phenomena as opposed to the emptiness of self. And we see these tonight in the writing. So I just offer these two, but I'm not going to go through them at this point. I'm going to switch over to the readings. Unless there's any uh, comments or questions on this particular page here. Uh, Henriette, just um, um, I I have a hard time figuring out where Yogacara, the Yogacara tenant system fits in here. Is it the Shentong? Well, there's two uses of the term Yogacara. Some people, like Galupas, will say that Yogacara is equivalent to Chittamatra. And then uh, the Jentongpas the will say that Yogacara is equivalent to Jentong. Okay. It's the Indian tenets version of Jentong, uh, or the Indian author's version of Jentong. Okay. Thank you. Anything else? Anyone? So let's see, tonight we start from page 99. I also gave you a little outline Oh, I forgot to screen share that. Where's that table of contents? This is class eight, the detailed outline of class eight. I I offer this to you because it's just something that I put together using the uh, outline that Liz had done, picking up the the major headers in the text, and I sort of drilled down to the subheaders in the hopes that it might help me understand the chapter. And so I offered it to you guys in the hope that someday you'll teach Madhyamaka and maybe this will be helpful to you. So page 99, the Madhyamaka system or Madhyamika, Madhyamaka system. Second major Mahayana tradition, the Madhyamaka system. Yamaka system is the most sublimely profound secret found in the teachings of the sage. Pretty clear where he's putting his money. The system acknowledge this system acknowledges the five bases of the knowable, but these are subsumed within two levels of truth. Therefore, the Madhyamikas say that all phenomena inherently lack any finite essence, any definable essence. Two major branches, Swatantrika and Prasangika, autonomous and consequentialist. Autonomous meaning that the Swatantrikas rely on uh, autonomous logical statements, meaning that uh, they believe that the subjects of a syllog- logical syllogism, which is a fancy way of saying a proof statement or a reasoning has uh, um, some ontological existence. And for them, it's on the relative level. And so they they say, okay, we when we're talking about the emptiness of an object, we're, we accept the object that you're talking about. Whereas prasangikas won't do that. They just say, oh, you want to talk about the tree? 
well, if you think there's a tree there, then, and they'll reduce that thought of there being something there to its uh, absurd consequences. Consequentialists, sort of funny names. My discussion of the Swatantrika system has two parts. Classification of those who accept ultimate truth as an object of consciousness and a discussion of a particular group that does not accept ultimate truth as an object of consciousness. So he's going to then launch into this very technical uh, division of different types of ways that these groups conceive of uh, the two truths. But uh, even though he doesn't really talk about it much, it's worth thinking about what does this mean, taking the ultimate truth as an object of consciousness? So on the one hand, if the ultimate truth is not an object of consciousness, how can you know it? And how can you attain liberation? Because in the Buddhist tradition, liberation is basic, generally considered to be um, the result of understanding the, the true nature of reality, the ultimate nature of reality. So how can you understand the ultimate nature of reality if it's not an object of consciousness? Well, maybe you can say, well, it's not an object of consciousness, but it's an object of primordial wisdom, or as the translator translates it, timeless awareness. And, you know, sort of fiddle with the word consciousness, with the perceiver. Or you can maybe fiddle with the type of perception. You can say, well, it's not a, not a dualistic subject-object experience. It's a non-dual experience so that that's how it's known where you can say well that doesn't make any sense it can't be an object of consciousness because it doesn't have any entity that can be known the mind knows things by virtue of characteristics it's matter characteristics uh, the characteristics are um, visible matter has colors and shapes Sound has pitch and tones or frequency and so on and so forth through the objects of the five senses. And then mental objects have uh, general characteristics. They have verbal descriptions that are created as uh, imputations upon the basis of initially sense experience. We start with sense experience and then we generalize. Oh, there's a class of phenomena called apples. And I see one in front of me and it belongs to that class. There's two of them there. They look similar but different. So there must be this common uh, class, this common commonality between them called appleness. So we know appleness because we describe it with characteristics of having a size and a shape and a taste and, and so forth. And if, if the ultimate nature has no characteristics, then how can we know it? How can emptiness, you say, well, emptiness is the, the characteristic of the ultimate nature, but is emptiness a characteristic? You know, they say all phenomena are empty. 
or are by, na by nature empty. In the earlier traditions, they say all phenomena are impermanent. All phenomena are marked by impermanence. They have this sort of, uh, if you lift up their arm, they have a little marking, a little number that says impermanent underneath them. Some, you know, a lot of things in this world say made in China, but uh, indestructible particles, when you look at them close at the bottom, even though they don't have parts on the bottom part, it says impermanent and compounded. They're compounded, so they have that mark. And uh, contaminated phenomena also have the mark of uh, what? What are, what are contaminated phenomena marked by? What's the third mark? Unsatisfactoriness. Right, the three marks of existence, all, all uh, compounded phenomena are permanent, all contaminated experiences, un dissatisfactory or unsatisfactory or suffering, and uh, all phenomena are without uh, essence, fundamental core. And, uh, and they say that, like the early meditation masters would say that they could see the impermanence of phenomena. Like, like in the, they could see the color of a phenomena, of, a, of matter, they could see its impermanence. In their uh, advanced absorption state, where they see the true nature of phenomena. And so some there was some extrapolation that went on you and uh, they would use a similar phraseology and say, well, emptiness, uh, all phenomena are also marked by emptiness. And that the, the Aryas, the supreme beings who have uh, uh, experienced the path of seeing and above, see the mark of emptiness in all phenomena. And by seeing that, that phenomena are empty, it eliminates the grasping at them because there's nothing to grasp at. So anyway, coming back to the Svatantrikas, they're, they're sort of on the cusp of this issue of like, what is the ultimate truth? Can it be, can it be an object of experience? Can it be experienced? Or is it, is it that which is beyond experience? And what does it mean to have to call something beyond experience of that? Are you just using language sort of habitually to describe, to indicate something, or does it actually have meaning? Anyway. Eric, can I ask a question on the, the thing you were just saying about the arias being able to experience that uh, emptiness of things? Would that, would in this case, do the arias refer to from within any of the tenant systems, would that include the Madhyamakas? It's it's in the Madhyamaka, like in the Prajnaparamita text. It's a it's a very common phrase that's in the sutras. All phenomena are marked by emptiness, with emptiness. Since they tend to sort of deny the fact that there's phenomena at all, but so they but they would still say something like that. Yes. Okay. I wasn't. I just wasn't sure if that was limited to the earlier systems only. Yeah. And uh, 
the description of what an aria experiences in um, in uh, the absorption meditation of the of the experience of enlightenment of seeing of the paths of seeing is the true nature of emptiness and that's uh, that is what liberates them yeah, I guess I just wondered if they would actually call it the emptiness of phenomena, because that seems to be sort of acknowledging that there is a phenomena, like what you were saying earlier about the tree, that, you know, they don't really accept the relative. Exactly, this this whole, you know, so the Madhyamaka, its advance upon the Chittamatra is, is a dismissal of all re- reality status to anything where Chittamatra is still holding on to there's there's experiencer there's mind with it like a big M is ultimate reality and the Madhyamakas are all there is is emptiness and um, it's a little bit easier to say with mind well we experience mind we have uh, uh, self-aware cognition we're aware of our mind and that self-aware cognition is the ultimate truth. And then the Madhyamakas talk en- endlessly about emptiness. And so, um, how is emptiness experienced? Is it experienced? It's like they come up with a, an ultimate that um, sort of uh, negates the idea of experiencing, of being experienceable. Yeah, I guess that's where the question came up, is that if they deny phenomena, then to talk about the emptiness of phenomena seems like it's kind of um, not even within their norm of... Yeah, exactly. Right, so it leads into all those questions. And so you have these this uh, on the initial sort of attempt to uh, characterize, so to speak, uh, the or frame what emptiness is as the true nature of reality. You have uh, the initial version is, well, emptiness is the nature of phenomena. And we, by perceiving that, we attain liberation. And then the subsequent phase is what you're saying as well. Um, you're talking about phenomena as if they possess this characteristic of emptiness. And it's like this dualistic situation or the little or the the uh, uh, situation of the Russian dolls where you know there's one inside the other until the last one has nothing in it and so you have uh, a facade that's empty but you haven't emptied the facade the facade possesses emptiness as if it's like part of it anyway all just splitting hairs, right? The hairs of uh, the horns of a hair. My five-part analysis includes basis of analysis, topics, derivation of the terms, detailed analysis itself, and the definitive enumeration. The definitive enumeration is of the of how many levels of truth are there? Are there three, three natures? Are there four levels of truth? Are there as many levels of truth as there are bases? Are there five? Is there one reality? 
Or are there two realities? Are there two truths? Uh, Morgan says two. <laughs> are there two realities or not? And so are the two truths one entity? Or are they different aspects of the same entity? Or are they both have nothing to do with reality? I don't know. Anyway, he's going to tell us. The basis for analysis is everything that can be known, all objects of knowledge. Second, generally speaking, there are four, four alternative positions concerning what characterizes the two levels of truth. So, it's, so at this stage, it's all about what are the two levels of truth? He said, he said on the page before, the five bases are characterized uh, in relationship to the two levels of truth. And this was not that much of a preoccupation in the earlier systems. And here it's the uh, complete obsession. So while, you know, Madhyamakas had uh, let go of all conceptual elaboration, they're highly fixated on the two levels of truth. Um, and subtle, uh, subtle differences in how to understand these two levels. So one is saying that ultimate truth and relative are synonymous terms. They're not separate entities. They're just different. They're just synonyms. Just like we have synonyms for other things, all sorts of things in our world. Really one entity. Two, the two levels of truth are actually separate separate things. They're essentially separate, meaning they're separate identities or essences. So that's the opposite. So they're one thing, or they're separate, they're exclusive. Three, they're separate aspects with an essential identity, which is sort of a subdivision of number two. It's like, well, um, or I don't know, maybe number one. It's sort of between one and two. It's like a middle position. It's like, well, there's really one identity, and it just has these two aspects. It's two sides of the same coin, as, yeah. as often is the characteristic of the way emptiness, uh, the two truths are characterized. Four, they are separate simply by virtue of their identity being negated, which is an odd one. A little bit hard to understand. I'm, I'm sort of thinking that it means that the fact that you can negate them separately means that they have some negatable identity. But that's all they have. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. He gives a, uh, um, a long quote from this uh, sutra. It's, uh, It's interesting that he chooses this sutra. This sutra is generally uh, classified as what's called the third turning of the wheel of Dharma Sutra. And we went through this earlier in the teachings of the Buddha, the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. The second turning was focused on uh, the teachings of emptiness. And the third turning was focused on delineating in what way things or phenomena are empty and in what way phenomena are not empty. And uh, so this is a sutra from that last period. Given what that what is relative is cognized through direct experience, the ultimate level of truth would have to be cognized as well. How would you know there was an ultimate? Since it would not be some aspect separate from the relative, this would mean, therefore, that 
being in samsara would have attained nirvana from the outset. It's the ultimate was an aspect of relative phenomena. When, when you perceive relative phenomena, you would perceive their ultimate nature as well. And so there, therefore, everybody would be enlightened because everybody sees relative phenomena and they would see the ultimate phenomena too. And that's what gives enlightenment. We know that everybody is not enlightened, so therefore we can we know that this version is not true, or is being presented as an incorrect version. Conversely, in that, in in that, in that, what is relative would not be some aspect separate from ultimate truth, given that they're not separate. This would mean that forms and so forth would also be in no way distinct from ultimate truth. This is option two, that um, let's see, it's hard for me to understand these things, which is why I've asked you all here tonight to help me. <laughs> I think he's still on one, isn't he? That the it's possible. Yeah, no, because the numbering, it's. Now, the sutras are very hard to understand. And so mm. the quote is not a, a completely clear. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Let's see if the other sections clarified in that ultimate truth would not be some aspect separate from relative truth, which involves the proliferation of afflicted states when some other, but sorry, when some object is taken as a focus. This would mean that afflictive states would increase when ultimate truth was taken as the object. If uh, if the two truths were the s- different sides of the same coin, when you perceived ultimate truth, which should grant liberation from uh, kleshas, instead it would prolif- create a proliferation of kleshas because it would it's just the other side of the coin and so when you perceive one side you get both sides you get the full coin i guess that ultimate truth would not be some aspect separate from relative truth about which nothing is to be done given that it has already been cognized through valid cognition this would mean that there would be no further conclusion to reach concerning ultimate truth well, a little bit cryptic, to say the least, but I'll go with his his uh, explanation. Uh, it, although I think as Cynthia was trying to hint to me, these are all, could be all taken as support for the first option. I'm not entirely sure of that. I mean, it does seem a little, some of the language is a little odd, like when you get into number two here essentially separate of it's the way he says number two in that next line actually seems to suggest number three so i do think it's actually not as straightforward as the numbering would suggest the translator says in the note for 266 that longchempa switches two and three in these explanations which is why that happens uh right so in that case two is really three and right. Three will become two. So in that case, it still argues that that number one is supposed to all be about the first one. Yeah. Little hard to hard to. 
Right. Uh, but good. Thank you, Emily, and uh, and anybody else that read the notes. I unfortunately did not get there, so please let us know of any uh, helpful notes. I ended up reading more of the text than I was supposed to. So uh, let's read on page 101 is number uh, two, and this. Well, let's let's go to three. That's as you say, is the description of option two, which is the two levels of truth are essentially separate entities, or separate entities or essences. As for holding that the two levels of truth, so on the bottom of uh, 101, are substantially separate entities, we may quote again from this same sutra where, which undermines this position through five lines of reasonings. There's five reasons why this would not be true. This would mean that even though one had actual realization of ultimate truth, one would not attain nirvana because what is relative would be conceived of as being apart from the ultimate. So attaining nirvana would not affect what happens in the relative world. This would mean that ultimate truth substantially separate from what is relative would not be the actual nature of relative truth, just as a vase is not the actual nature of anything else, like the blanket. And this would mean because the two levels of truth would be substantially separate, that ultimate truth would not constitute the mere fact that what is relative cannot be established to exist in the slightest, just as the mere fact that the boss cannot be established to exist in the slightest does not constitute a blanket. So anyway, these are supports for that uh, option number two. So let's go back to number two on page 101, which is a description of number, uh, option number three. We don't have to go through them in full. To hold that the two levels of truth are separate aspects of a single essence is to accept that illusion is ultimate truth. This contradicts the following passage from the sutra called The Perfection of Sublime Knowing. For one who is actually awakened to manifest in complete Buddhahood, any given phenomenon is neither true nor false. Timeless awareness, Yeshe, of meditative equipose, knows all phenomena to be like the vault of space. We've seen that before, haven't we? The vault of space. I love that term. Whereas timeless awareness of post-meditation knows all phenomena to be like illusions. Anyway, so we're going to dispense with any of these four ways of understanding the relationship between the, the two truths. Let's get to the fourth one on page 102. Therefore, ultimate truth, which is a freedom from all conceptual elaborations, cannot be described either as some real entity other than relative truth or as one and the same as relative truth. Their separateness is merely a matter of their identity being negated. negated. So here's his conclusion, is that you can't uh, assert accurately or correctly assert that they're either separate or the same. All you can say is that we can negate their, them, set them uh, one by one. Their separateness is merely a matter of each other's identities being negated. Third, and so third is part going back to his five-part analysis. So here, third is the derivation of the terms. The Sanskrit term samvritti, 
which is the term for relative truth. And it literally means that which obscures. So sam, S-A-M, means completely, and vritti means to sort of uh, turn about or to turn over or thereby sort of to hide or obscure. So completely obscured. And he's here or the translator is uh, adding a, a sort of uh, noun to it, that which does the obscuring is the relative truth. The Tibetan equivalent is kunzop. That's how that second word is pronounced. You ignore the R. Kunzo is relative truth, and that means all similarly false. Well, he says falsifying everything. Trump Rinpoche describes this as anyone? All dressed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all made up. This refers to confused consciousness that obscures what is authentic and that there is a validity inherent to the scope of such consciousness. There is truth. If there's validity in the way that we understand relative truth, if it can be said to be valid, then we can call it truth. And this truth lies in the very fact that in essence, all the phenomena that manifest in myriad ways for example, as forms and so forth are similar to dreams. So if you consider your dreams to be true, then you can say that the relative is true. So the relative is as true as your dreams are. Actually, true. sorry, going back to really basic definitions, things, what is true meant? Meaning, what is the definition of true in our context here? Well, uh, that's a good question. I just say it because, you know, if you ask, are my dreams true? Well, it depends on how you define that. You know, it's a genuine aspect of experience. But does that make it true? Well, saying they have real but not true or... <laughs> synonymous usually true is synonymous with able to perform a function but Kevin yeah I, I always thought it was existing that the way it's being used here is truth means something exists is that not right well we do have this uh, anomaly then of there being false existence well, false well, is not true But it implies that existence includes true and false phenomena. So like our, our generally characterized phenomena existent. You could say at the moment that you're thinking about one, but in that case, is it a general or a specific? A specific generally characterized. <laughs> anyway, I'll go with Kevin for now. That uh, true means real or existent. It means existent. Without uh, splitting too many more hairs. Right. 
So then do you, would you say your dreams are existent? Your dreams come true. This truth lies in the very fact, in essence, all phenomena that manifest are similar to dreams. Sorry. The Sanskrit, now we have ultimate truth, the Sanskrit term Parama-Arta. The Parama means uh, um, uh, supreme or paramount. And Arta is purpose or meaning or goal. And when they join the A, that ends the word parama and the beginning of arta combine and they make a long A, parama arta. Means the goal sought by those who strive for what is excellent. Uh, he seems to have a different version of parama than I do, which is cool. And the Tibetan equivalent is dundam pa. Dundam pa sacred or highest meaning. So dun is meaning. Dun actually has a number of meanings, one of which is meaning. Um, it can mean uh, meaning, it can mean purpose. Dhampa is a sacred or holy or uh, pure. refers to consciousness as the awareness that is in essence an unconfused state of mind. Furthermore, it is sacred because it is the most sublime level of magnificence and that there is validity within the scope of the unconfused state of mind. To that extent, there is truth, suchness itself. It's not very explicit here, but what's happened is that uh, the relative and the ultimate and the Madhyamaka are now being defined in terms of the state of mind of the perceiver, as opposed to it being an, uh, an object that one perceives. And, and when I say object, it's a little misleading because the subject, like the mind, can be an object. We can, we can experience the mind as in the Chittamatra. Mind of the Chittamatra, the non-dual mind, is an object of experience. Here we're talking about, and so that object, that non-dual mind, is the ultimate in the Chittamatra. And the imaginary and the dependent are the relative. The imaginary is the false relative, and the dependent is the true relative. In the Madhyamaka system, ultimate and relative are purely described in terms of a, a correct perceiver and an incorrect perceiver or an enlightened perceiver and unconfused. What does he say? Um, an unconfused state of mind. The, uh, the experience of an unconfused state of mind is the ultimate. Anyway, force as for the definitive enumeration. So, okay, let's finally, we get to the, to the essence of this analysis, this five-part analysis of the two truths. One can ascertain a context that involves dualism, owing to the simple negation of anything transcending all of the dualistic frameworks, such as non-existence and non-existence, and so forth, that apply to forms and other objects of knowledge. In the absence of a third alternative, the valid cognition that conceives in terms of dualities 
brings the certainty that there is a definitive enumeration. So, uh, rel sort of a relative world, valid cognition, <coughs> perceives things that um, dual perceives dualistically, and that uh, valid cognition experiences that there is a definitive enumeration, a pairing of what involves duality with what is beyond duality. What involves duality is the relative, and what is beyond it is the ultimate. So, uh, sort of re uh, relative world definitive, uh, sorry, uh, relative world valid cognition sees the two truths as being two in, eight in number. This definitive enumeration is achieved by classifying the two aspects of this pairing as the two aspects, as the two levels of truth. So he concludes that there's two levels of truth with the caveat that they're not uh, separate or the same. It's the detailed analysis focuses on two topics, the ultimate and relative. This sutra says there are two levels of truth for those wise in the ways of the world. You should not just listen to others talking, but see these for yourself. They are the relative and ultimate levels in no way is there a third. So it's definitive that there's two. We analyze relative, we find it has two aspects. There's what is erroneous on the relative level. So this is the Swatantra could take on these two truths. What is erroneous on the relative level, i.e., for, or for example, what is apparent yet incapable of performing a function, and what is valid on the relative level, that which is apparent and capable of performing a function. So delineating the two truths explains, although these aspects appear to be similar because of the ability or inability to perform functions, there is what is valid and invalid. This constitutes the analysis of what is relative of the two types of the relative, capable and not capable of performing functions, i.e. generally characterized phenomena are not capable of performing functions and uh, specifically characterized phenomena in the Sautrantica terminology are capable of performing functions. That is and the function, by the way, is earning money, in case we were wondering. That is, what is valid on the relative level comprises phenomena such as forms and so forth that are endowed with four characteristics. They're capable of performing functions according to the way they manifest, whatever their sort of destiny is. They're, they're able to do that. They come about from causes. Uh, Kevin. I think these passages are particularly apt for this evening and the vote. So what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just keep that in mind. Uh, let's see. They come about from causes. They cannot bear up under mental examination. They fall apart when they're mentally examined. I usually fall apart when I'm mentally examined too, but that means I guess I'm a relative truth, or no, that means I'm in a 
invalid. Anyway, and they manifest according to their respective types. Everything has its type. All the dharmas have their own type. They exist in that they have the ability to perform a function. So this is the relative. And the Svatantrikas are sounding very much like the Sautrantrikas and the Vibhashikas, aren't they, in terms of the relative? Okay. What is erroneous on the relative level comprises those sensory experiences that manifest but are incapable of performing a function, such as optical illusions like a hair falling across one's field of vision, which are floaters, which actually are specifically characterized phenomena because they're little uh, actual objects in the fluid of the eyeball. But anyway, they didn't know that. And or the appearance of a double moon. The Swatantrikas hold that these erroneous sensory appearances can be distinguished from valid phenomena on the basis of their inability to perform functions. As for what is ultimate, it has two aspects. There is a quantifiable aspect of the ultimate, and this aspect entails the simple negation of production and so forth in any true sense, but other than that, it does not entail freedom from the conceptual elaboration of non-production. The unquantifiable aspect of the ultimate is a freedom from absolutely all elaboration, such as production and non-production. So they divide, like, like we've seen before, there's two levels to the ultimate, quantifiable and unquantifiable. And the real one, of course, is the unquantifiable one. And the other one is an approximation through conceptualization that helps you get there, but actually doesn't result in freedom. In enlightenment, which is defined as freedom from all elaboration. According to the same source, which was what, uh, two truths distinguishing. Negation of production and so forth is considered to occur with what is authentic. Ultimate is applied to the subsiding of all conceptual elaboration, even that of non-production. So, uh, the uh, experience of non-production is a conceptual elaboration. So proving that phenomena are not produced and therefore empty is a conceptual exercise. And so it's an approximation of the true ultimate, but it's not the actual true ultimate because it's still a, a conceptualized understanding of, of an ultimate by virtue of a negation. Anyway, so they're talking about the distinction between an experience and the an experience experiential knowledge as opposed to conceptual knowledge. Is that part of this? Uh, you, you could put it that way, or you could put it that they're they're talking about the difference between, uh, on the one hand, the. Uh, the subject that understands the, the, the true nature of reality, on the one hand, is the quantifiable, and the unquantifiable is the actual true nature of reality, mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a conceptual mind's experience of it or uh, understanding of it. Characteristics. He presents those in two parts. Uh, the actual characteristics positive and the logic used to distinguish between the two levels of truth in a definitive way. First, 
Buddhist group of Swatantric is the characteristic of truth, pure and simple. I love that phrase. Is the absence of an independent nature of any given phenomena. What characterizes the relative truth is the fact that no phenomena can stand up under mental investigation. Definition of relative truth cannot stand up, withstand mental investigation, analysis. And he's going to show us what those analyses are soon. What characterizes ultimate truth is the fact that something can stand up under investigation. So here we have the Svetanchukha that has somewhat of a substantialistic way of, of understanding the ultimate. There is something that can withstand investigation. Uh, the fact that something is in essence empty of any true existence constitutes the absence of an independent nature. That something cannot stand up under, that something cannot stand up under a mental investigation means that in the final analysis, its inherent existence can be refuted by the reasoning power of mind and investigates it critically. Firstly, that something can, can stand up under mental investigation means that it cannot be refuted in any way by such reasoning. It's not damaged by reasoning at all. As a side note, materialists maintain that the ability to perform a function defines the ultimate level of truth. So he's talking about the Vaibhashikas and the Sautrantikas. For them, ultimate truths are those that are capable of performing functions. So they do not accept the concept of validity on the relative level. For them, the relative is the inability to perform a function. So there's no valid uh, phenomena there. However, proponents of the Madhyamaka approach, on the other hand, speak in terms of two aspects of what is relative. For them, what is valid on the relative can be characterized as any object of knowledge that can stand up under investigation, but is nevertheless able to perform a function. So, so the Madhyamakas have taken the ultimate of the Swatantrikas and made it the true relative, made it the valid relative. Um, what is erroneous on the relative level is characterized as any object of knowledge that cannot stand up under investigation and in addition is unable to perform a function that fails both tests. Total failure in life. Some other materialists say that there are two kinds of ultimate dependent and absolute ultimate. He's talking about the Chittamatras. However, proponents of the Madhyamaka approach give the following. Analysis using negation of one part of a conceptual elaboration as their rationale, they apply the term quantifiable ultimate to what is in fact ultimate truth as a particular aspect of relative truth, that is non-production. It's really, the quantifiable ultimate is really part of relative truth because it's a description. It's a, it's a description obtained through mental investigation. They apply the term unquantifiable ultimate truth to the simple transcendence and the ultimate sphere of all such elaborations since these cannot in any way be established in light of their fundamentally unconditioned nature. Curious the use of the plural 
in these. Nevertheless, the Madhyamakas say that given this freedom from all conceptual elaborations, nothing can possibly be defined as some ultimate thing in its own right. Which of the five bases of the knowable forms and so forth, one may wonder express one or, or the other of the level of uh, two levels of truth. On the base, the basis that expresses the ultimate truth is that of uncompounded phenomena, which is the fifth of the five bases. And of these, not all of them qualify. Space and the two states of cessation cannot stand up under mental investigation. Because they're negations that depend on something specific being negated. Therefore, they don't withstand analysis. And so they do not qualify as things that are ultimately true. Only suchness is ultimately true. Emptiness. One should be aware that the bases that express relative truth are all objects of knowledge other than suchness, which is not something produced. Some Madhyamakas who are biased toward relative truth profess views that accord with the Vaibhashikas. So here I'm going to skip a little bit. So there's some Satrantikas that are like Vaibhashikas in the next paragraph. Uh, others accept the position of those Madhyamakas who profess Satrantika tenets. So there's Satrantika, Swatantrika, Madhyamakas. Now he's implying that there's Vaibhashika, Swatantrika, Madhyamakas, which I've never seen that term. But Sautrantika Swatantrika Madhyamakas, which is quite a tongue twister, is a common term. Classification. And then there's the Yogacara Swatantrika Madhyamakas, which is the other sect or school of this Madhyamakas. So he's saying there's three of them, which is interesting. So the next chapter, still others profess Yogacara attendance. Skipping those, uh, although many such interpretations are set forth, so on uh, 106, the, the first full paragraph, there are some dissimilarities between the Swatantrika groups and those other systems. You know, so even though they have some similarities with Vaibhashika and so forth, they're significantly different than when he goes through those. So skipping that, let's focus on the next paragraph. Let's start with that. He goes through the logic. The logic used by Swatantrikas in their definitive differentiation of the two levels of truth is also twofold, just for convenience. Their, uh, their logic in differentiating relative truth is as follows. Forms and so forth are sensory appearances, sense objects that occur through interdependent connection. Deductive logic. You all know the difference between deductive and inductive logic. I asked Morgan to be here tonight to, if he could just explain briefly the difference between deductive and inductive logic. Deductive logic is to reason from a set of uh, facts down to something that must be true if those are true. So it's sort of, you know, it, 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 there's not, there's not any, any uh, subjectivity in it. It's just these facts are true. If they're true, therefore this must be true. Inductive logic is, is more like making a leap. Like you're reasoning something through and then you're taking your best guess as to what might happen. 
like if you're gambling on a football game or something, you know, if this team has an 80% chance of winning, you're betting on them rather than the one that has 20% chance, but you could be wrong. Cool. So, so deductive, it sounds like uh, you're, you're looking at a range of uh, phenomena that you're calling evidence and from them coming up with a general principle. Uh, or, or a specific fact. I mean, like, you know, uh, um, a syllogism. A syllogism would come up with a specific fact. Okay, you're, you're de deducing uh, yeah. a result, a conclusion from them. Okay. Do you have an example for us? Of, uh, um, uh, Think on that, know, and we'll it, come back to you, or? It's light outside, so the sun must be up. And the sun is up because it's daytime, and it's you know it's daytime because it's between this time and that time. Those kinds of reasonings. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, thank you. So the uh, let's see, deductive logic can be applied to these meaning forms and so forth or sensory appearances that occur interdependently. Deductive logic can be applied to these with reasoning that employs the argument, for example, that phenomena are free of being one and many. Freedom is a good thing. And, uh, you know, being pinned down as one thing or many things is also sort of limiting and painful. And, uh, I think it's, it's sort of generally, it's, a, it's sort of a discrimination. And uh, it's not, not being inclusive. And, uh, anyway, such logic refutes the claim that these appearances are truly existent entities that can stand up under their investigation. So under investigation. So uh, the phenomena free, being free of one or many is a preview of one of the reasonings. On the basis of this refutation, they are ascertained to be objects of knowledge that cannot stand up under investigation. So the definitive, this is the definitive characteristic of the relative inability to withstand investigation. You propose that uh, there's a, there are trees and uh, using deductive logic, you can analyze that if a tree, there's really a tree, it should be one thing and, or many things. and using the logic that we'll see later, uh, you can't actually prove it to be one thing or many. Your logic in differentiating the ultimate is as follows. The reason you want to investigate what stands up under such investigation and the final analysis. So there is something that withstands final analysis. Once one has used this logic to ascertain what this is, realization takes place through one's self-knowing, non-conceptual, Timeless awareness, Jnana. Ordinary people, however, can ascertain what is ultimately true only through deductive logic, using lines of reasoning. That is putting aside specific cases of objects in the phenomenal world. The mere sense of things in general is taken as the basis, and certainty is reached through valid cognition, which is of two types, either direct experience or deductive reasoning inference that is concerned with this single aspect of the appearance of things. Thus, one uses the critical reasoning by which one refutes that things in general are truly existent entities and investigates emptiness, the final freedom from conceptual elaboration. Just talking about how is logic used? 
why do we why do we go through the process of learning and understanding how deduction works? Once one has used this logic to ascertain what this is, one cuts through any naive assumptions about specific things. And as particular instances of form, states of mind, such as happiness and so forth. The usual thoughts that we have of like, oh, I am happy or unhappy is an assumption that includes the belief in an I and the belief that there's a state of mind that's either one or many. This is becomes was this is because one's realization is such that these particular instances do not invalidate the simple fact that things are understood to entail emptiness. So the emptiness is the conclusion of these deductions and thereby withstands analysis. I think you might ask, what is it? That's what Tantra does refute concerning objects in the phenomenal world. That's a good question. The proponents of the Sutantra Vinyamaka do not posit that there is anything to be refuted. What? Did I read that right? There's nothing to be refuted after all that? Help me out here. What's going on? It sounds like the Prasangakas. Anya, anyone? Eileen? Lori? What is he talking about? There's nothing to be refuted. Liz? Emily? <laughs> Nevertheless, this does not mean that their proofs and deductive arguments are pointless because in view of there being nothing to refute, they lead to the realization that there is, in fact, nothing to refute. Oh, he's being cute, right? He's saying the result of all the analyses is that there was nothing there to begin with. So the, the actual conclusion is that there is nothing. And so the refutation is not refuting some actual things. It's refuting the belief that there are actual things to refute. So I guess that goes back to answering the point that I was raising before about the assigning things in there. <laughs> and their truth status, right? That is, in view of there being no truly existent entity, these proofs and arguments lead to the understand. Oh, sorry. Thus, the situation is akin to the following example. Of, oh, I don't like this example, mannequins. Anyway, let's skip the example. Um, therefore, so skipping a couple of sentences, therefore, although they refute fixation, pure and simple. Fixation, pure and simple on the true existence of things. Photonicus do not say such and such alone is to be refuted. Not minute particles or reflexive consciousness or primal matter or some all-powerful being. This is because the general refutation automatically takes care of specific cases. Called the entailment, once you refute one example of a type of phenomena, then it, you extend it to all phenomena. Okay, so now we come to the other type of Swatantrakas who do not accept that ultimate truth is an object of consciousness. Those in the second group do not accept that ultimate truth is an object of consciousness. And they hold that what manifests on the relative level that is sensory appearances that clearly appear yet are non-existent are like dreams. These can be established to be simply appearances that are produced by their 
simply appearing causes, but on the ultimate level, nothing can be established with the scope within the scope of self-knowing, timeless awareness. Nothing can be established because nothing can withstand analysis. Neither the two levels of truth nor any of the phenomena of samsara and nirvana, so even the ultimate cannot be established as existent or true. Um, and he quotes from the, the, the oddly named text called The Intermediate Mother. <laughs> Out of context, that would be like a really bizarre name for a book, wouldn't it? The Intermediate Mother. Uh, length, Mother. We find uh, Sabuti, all phenomena are such that on the ultimate level they inherently lack any finite essence. So even Nirvana is not produced, does not exist. Period. These photographers consider the conclusions they reach in analyzing and characterizing the two levels of truth to be the quantifiable aspect of ultimate truth in light of which these amount to just so many conclusions. That's all they are, conclusions, conceptual conclusions. In light of the unquantifiable aspect of what is ultimate, on the other hand, how could there possibly be any logic with which to ascertain how truth is to be analyzed or characterized? This aspect is beyond the scope of what can be imagined or verbalized. This approach amounts to cutting through conceptual elaborations in order to become free of erroneous assumptions about such concepts as existence and non-existence. That is, any classification of the two levels of truth or any lines of reasoning, such as the argument that a phenomena are free of one and many. So there are some photographers that get the ultimate truth right, but they still have a clunky version of the relative truth. Which is uh, good to remember because this is where this, the prasanga goes come in. But the interlude is this uh, very important section where he goes through in a, a very quick way the uh, the lines of reasoning, the five major lines of reasoning. Many of us have seen these before and we'll see them over and over again. And uh, I gave you a little handout on them as well which was the second page of that two-pager that says at the top, the four skills of Madhyamaka. Sorry, I left one out. He's, he gives all five, I only give four. Apologize, I'll have to make, I owe you a skill or a, a reasoning. Anyway, to determine that there's no origination, cessation, and so forth in the ultimate level, Swatantrika has used five major lines of reasoning that they consider to be definitive. These five can be understood to conform to four models. They are the argument known as the Vajra shards. It's often translated as the Vajra uh, slivers. I call them the Vajra slippers. It's a refutation that a refutation that examines the causes of any object to be refuted. So how does causation come about? If we say that something exists, then uh, either it has existed for all time, which is not something that any God-fearing Buddhists will ever profess to, 
um, or we, we are asserting that uh, something has been produced and come into existence. And that's what uh, your average Buddhist on the street believes is that there's causes and conditions that come together and produce the world as we know it, phenomena. So causation. And so the Madhyamakas go about, uh, uh, they take this very ba basic fact of uh, existence according to the average Joe Buddhist and they, they refute that. And there's the argument called the refutation of the production and cessation of what is existent or non-existent. So when we, uh, separate from causation, it's looking at, well, what's the result of the causative process, the production process of causes and results? Let's focus on the result. You say uh, causes and conditions came about and now there's a car or there's a tree or there's a baby. And you say that baby and that tree and that car weren't there before. And so where did they come from? Did they just appear out of nothing? That's the second argument. The argument called the refutation of production in any of four ways, which is basically a combination of one and two is saying, well, either either there's a one-to-one -one correlation of causes and results, which is sort of silly, simplistic. It's just too simplistic. There's no way that one cause can yield one result. Um, oh, sorry, he doesn't go into that yet. I'll, I'll wait. Then there's a refutation that examines something in its essence, the argument known as the supreme principle of interdependent connection, which is the supreme of all arguments in case you want to have an argument, might as well go for the supreme one, is one of establishing of a line of reasoning that involves a qualified negation. So there's two types of negations, qualified and unqualified, meaning, um, I don't know, this term qualified mystifies me, so I'm going to have to skip it. Uh, and that called, finally, the fifth one is called freedom from being one or many, unitary or manifold. Uh, Derek? Yeah, yeah. Is qualified and unqualified, does that correspond to uh, implicative and non-implicative? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it would, an implicative negation would qualify here. I think these all have to be non-implicative negations, that they don't imply that there's some other way that something might exist. So that's, well, it's a good question of uh, what is this qualified and unqualified mean? The only, you know, on one of the footnotes, footnote 268, mm. he talks about un, an unqualified negation is a simple denial that X is the case without anything further being implied. Oh, so you're right, yeah. A traditional example is the statement, quote, the identity of an individual personality does not exist, end quote. And then he says a qualified negation, on the other hand, while denying that X is the case, 
also implies that Y is the case. Hmm. But that was way yeah. back, that was 268, but... It would still apply, I would. I mean, he's still using the same term. That's same term, yeah. So this is an implicative negation. That's interesting. Hmm. We'll have to... We'll have to think about that. Thank you for that. Uh, so then to go through them in a little more detail, that of the Vajra shards is something that is not produced from itself. So so uh, for each of these arguments, what we do is we char characterize the options. And then uh, we, in characterizing the options, we have to come up with exhaustive options so that there's no other options. And if we can eliminate all the options that we've identified, then we have to agree that there's no uh, other alternative. And so in terms of production, one way of characterizing all possible options for production is produced from itself, produced from something else, produced from both, or produced without cause. And um, if you can eliminate all four of these options, then something that does not succeed in being produced in any of these four ways must therefore be utterly devoid of the status of being a real entity that is actually produced. As in the case, for example, with a generic idea, which is not a real entity. So when you come up with the idea of an implicative or non-implicative negation, for example, of a, of a concept that we just touched upon, you can't identify it as something that was produced in any particular way. Specifically, the subjects under discussion, that is any and all things, everything, are in the ultimate sense, therefore, devoid of the status of being produced from any of these four options. Now, he doesn't drill down and give you the refutation of each of the four options, which is found in, in other longer texts or texts that focus on these specifically. And there was a course in the, that, we, that we did in the Shadra that's on the website, and there's a source book there where there's readings that go through these four in more detail called the uh, Path of Madhyamaka, I believe, Path of the Middle Way. But um, the main text that goes through these in, in uh, great detail, this first argument of the Vajra Shards, the famous text is Chandra Kirti's um, Introduction to the Middle Way. And so you see the sheet that I handed out, the one that has two pages, that second page, the four skills. Um, Kempo has pulled a quote from Chandra Kirti's text. He says, he, it's just a summary. Since it does not arise from itself, other both, without a cause, suffering does not arise. Present suffering is also like this. So suffering in general does not exist in your specific experience of being depressed and unhappy does not exist. Nothing personal here. The, uh, the second argument is as follows. Something that is devoid of the status of being a result, whether existent or non-existent, which comes from causes, utterly devoid of the status of being a real entity that's actually produced. As in the case, for example, with a generic idea. Again, 
So just briefly, like the, the way that causation is negated, for example, like uh, if something's caused by itself, then it would cause itself ceaselessly and at any time and haphazardly. And just sort of like rabbits on steroids, uh, one thing would just produce many of itself all over the place. And if it was produced by something that's other, then uh, there's no way that the two can ever meet because uh, um, either that other has to be exist at the same time and therefore uh, it's not a cause because the result already exists. So you can't say that the cause and the result exist at the same time because if the result is already there, then the cause is not needed. And if they exist at different times, then they never meet. And how can a cause ever produce a result? And the logic of the second reasoning of results is how can something appear out of nothing? How can you produce something out of nothing? It must have been there in some way beforehand in order to be produced. And if it was already there, then you don't need to produce it. But to produce something out of nothing is really illogical. It's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. The third argument is that uh, something that is devoid of the status of being a single Result. So this is the one that I omitted. A single result from a single cause or a multiple result from a single cause or a single cause from a multiple result or a multiple result from multiple causes. Sounds like sort of a, a accident lawyer that you might call, you know, if you get hit by a car. Um, ambulance chaser, I think they're called. Uh, is utterly devoid of the status of being a real entity that is actually produced. As in the case, for example, of, he uses the same example each time. Uh, you'd think he would come up with some other examples, but specifically, although things manifest as they do, they are devoid of the status of being produced in any of these ways, whether one thing being produced from another thing. And so this, this, the logic of this one is that, uh, uh, sort of a twofold logic. One is that the relationship of there being one cause and one result it makes no sense because um, nothing occurs in a vacuum. And then many producing many would just be um, uh, either a, a case of uh, many ones producing many ones, which we just said was illogical. So just if you have lots of them, that doesn't make it more logical. Or if you have many that produce one, it's like, what happened to all those many causes? They all disappeared and one result appeared. Or the other type of logic is that you've just combined the first two arguments. And so they, they don't make any sense. The fourth argument of interdependent connection is that something that occurs through interdependent connection is by nature devoid of true existence, as in the case, for example, with a reflection. Uh, so it's interdependently produced, and uh, 
uh, it's it's supported both in its production and in its subsistence and its disappearance by the confluence of other phenomena, and it has no independent reality because it's simply the the coming together of a whole number of uh, inter interdependent phenomena. And so this is supposed to be the king of all reasonings, interdependence. That that that's supposed to be the simplest and uh, most uh, effective way of reasoning into emptiness. It's just interdependence is the uh, the very definition of emptiness. That which is interdependent is empty, and that which is empty is interdependent. So only things that appear. Are, are um, only things that appear are empty, and only things that are empty appear. Something like that. The fifth, freedom from being at <clears throat> unity or manifold, can be understood as a threefold process. First, establishing a line of reasoning, proving the properties of the subject under discussion and examining the validity of the argument by ascertaining what is entailed. It's interesting that for this one, he's, he fleshes out the uh, syllogistic process. A syllogism is a, a logical statement that has a subject and a, um, a probands or something, something that you're trying to prove, and then a reason. A subject, uh, what a hypothesis, what is this This called a subject and a, I can't remember, probands. Probandum? Probandum? Yeah, probandum. All of them, probandum, all of them. The first step in the process is that something is of necessity free of being unitary manifold, and therefore it's necessarily devoid of any attribute of true existence as in the case with a generic idea again. Therefore, it's not real. The idea is that anything that exists can be broken down into its parts. It's a little bit odd that he doesn't go a little bit further with the reasonings and give you the reasoning for the reasonings, but he gives you uh, the categories of the reasonings without giving the actual reasonings. But everything that exists as a, as a phenomena, as a phenomena, can be broken down into parts ad infinitum. And th therefore, there's no one oneness to any entity. There's no unitary nature. And uh, you can't say, well, those, uh, the sum of the parts makes a unitary phenomena, because each part has its own. Uh, absence of unitary nature, so you can't like add up a lot of non-unitary phenomena and come up with a unitary phenomena. It's you know uh, you you can't make up for uh, um, the absence of true existence of of a phenomena by volume. You know, like when people say, "Well, I'm gonna." cut my price and uh, I'll make it up on volume. Never mind, that was a bad, bad example, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see.
The second step, proving the properties of the subject under discussion, is the proof that things are free. So this is the actual proof statement. As, a, as um, The first one was stating that the various options, as I said earlier, is identifying what are the options that something is either unitary or manifold. And if it's not, you know, this is like the, uh, setting down the rules of the debate. Uh, if we can prove that it's unitary or, or manifold, then, it's, then it can exist. But if we can't prove those two, then we have to agree that there's no third option and therefore it can't exist. And so then we actually go through the, uh, the proof that they're free of it. And he quotes Nagarjuna, just as the moment has a finite end, examine it well, it's onset and interim, because this moment actually has three parts to it. And those three parts each have three parts and so forth. The world does not abide for a moment. There is no such thing as a moment. And he goes through this example using the time of day in uh, detail. Rufus point. And the third step, skipping that second paragraph that begins with the fact, and going to the third step, examining the validity of the argument by ascertaining what it's entailed, is as follows. Considering vases and other things. So then you, you expand the application of the proof to all phenomena. Considering vases and other things put aside their specific features as vases and so forth and simply refute that things exist per se as manifold entities with this initial refutation when it reaches the point at which they seem convincingly enough to exist as separate entities. Let us ascertain in direct experience whether things that exist per se are of necessity existent as unitary entities or manifold. Take the case that we give an existent thing perceived to be a specific thing that is necessarily either one or many. If that thing were some ultimately existing entity, that would preclude any possibility of doubt that it was necessary either one or many. For in the case of something being an ultimately existent entity, the fact that it is necessarily either one or many is taken for granted. That was a long-winded way of saying something that's sort of convoluted. And I think he was saying, uh, when you look at vases and so forth, you take away the generally characterized part of vaseness and just focus on the specific characterized phenomena in front of you and see if you can find something that's one or many in it. But it's just a conjecture. And he refutes the Svetantrika position, which we'll, uh, we'll leave for next week. We'll let that sink in for a week. We get to, we get to, Believe the Svetantrika position. That was pretty good. I thought it was pretty convincing. Maybe it didn't have enough detail, but he was pretty convincing in, in presenting it. And he's all-knowing, so I'm, I'm going to go with whatever he says, pretty much. Which is not the right view to take, obviously. Don't accept anything that anybody says ever, anytime. Therefore, you should you should refute this position all week long. And uh, let's reconvene next week and see how he refutes it as well and goes on to the next view. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll know something about it, the state of the world 
next Tuesday, which is November um, 10th, November 10th. Uh, Veterans Day is what, the 11th, right? Is that a holiday? Do people get off from work? I think it depends. I'm off. Some do, some don't. If you're a veteran, you get it off. No, no, more than that. <laughs> like public sector, we, we it, it, it was a holiday. Right, right, right. Okay. And I think not all private sector does. Right. Are we are we going to know by next Tuesday if a real president exists? We don't know whether we'll know or not, but let's hope so. If the right. if the president will be one or many. Yes. Right. Will be one or many. Or neither. <laughs> how can you how can you make somebody who's not the president the president? How can you produce the president if the president doesn't exist already? Is the president produced caused by herself or by others? By the, other illusion, the illusion of there being a president is has a lot of basis. A lot of bases. Yes. There's yes, a constitution and elections and all those other things, but they still it's an illusory thing. That'd be good, like uh, an inauguration speech from the Vinyamaka point of view. <laughs> like, there's no way that you can actually be the president because you can't be anything at all. <laughs> That's the thing. But it would apply equally to both all all people, all possibilities, right? You can't use that, in other words, to uh, battle who gets to sit in the White House. And instead of the Bible, they would have the the president. Uh, hold their hand on the intermediate length mother. Mother, that's right. The mother, that's right. Maybe the maybe the large, the full length mother. How big that? How many? How big is that? That's pretty big. Can't even say that. It's like I'll get. Uh, they have to bring a truck, right? Oh uh, yes, uh, uh, a yak. Uh, like a yak can it can hold what a six volume length uh, mother. <laughs> A six volume, but <laughs> anyway, all sentient beings have been my mother's. And on that note, let's uh, ignore the news for tonight and have a pleasant evening. Relax. And let's dedicate the merit by this merit. May all team omniscience and aid defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways to birth old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you and have a good uh, evening and week. Hope to see you soon. Yeah, Thank you too. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>